Good morning. Welcome. Glad all of you have joined us today. This is such a great opportunity every single week to get together as a church. And uh, we worship God all week long and we learn about him and grow closer to him. But once a week, we take the chance or at least once a week to get together like this. And it's a really great thing. And it really, I, I think it helps to establish and firm up our foundation on a weekly basis. It's a good like reconnection point, touch point, because things can get so squirrely out there. And so it's a good chance to be here together to make sure that we're centered and focused and ready for the week, and we dedicate this week to God. And so thank you for being here and making that a priority and enjoying this with us. Uh, we've been in a study in Galatians, so if you have your Bibles, you can go ahead and turn there. Uh, and if you, if this is your first time with us or you haven't been here through this whole series, we're just, I think this is the fourth week now. And so if you want to catch up, it won't take you too long to do that. But what the Apostle Paul has been doing in this letter is establishing a foundation or reestablishing a foundation for the Christians in an area called Galatia. They're, they're from Gaul descent. They're from, they're weird, kind of, I'm going to say weirdos. They're weirdos in their area a little bit because they're, they're, they're people that have descended from the Gauls, which um, had migrated from like Germany and um, France right near the border. And they'd, they'd migrated out here um, before this, but they were, they were strange because they had blonde hair and, and they were kind of a nomadic people and they were sort of like mercenaries for a little while. And so they were kind of all over the place. And Paul had shared the gospel with them, had gone through on a missionary journey, shared the gospel with them, and they'd accepted Christ and they had set a great foundation. But then people came right in behind Paul and messed them up. They messed with their minds. And they were teaching them, these people that came in and messed with them, were teaching them that faith in Jesus wasn't enough to be saved, that they had to add to that works. In particular, they had, they were, these were Gentiles, not Jews, so they had to get circumcised. And um, Paul found out that they had bought into all this, that, oh, yeah, you could you faith in Jesus, but you also have to get circumcised, and you have to follow the law of Moses, and you have to do all this. Well, Paul found out about that after he left, and it broke his heart, and he was kind of mad at the Gauls for, for falling for this, these, these churches in this area, for falling for this. And so he writes this letter back to them to try to reestablish the foundation of the gospel with them and then build on that foundation. And I've kind of gotten this picture as I've been going through just sort of this visual image has been forming in my own mind of building a house. And that the house starts with the foundation. Any of you that ever built a house, you know that you have to start with the foundation. And it's kind of frustrating. <laughs> it's frustrating to do the site work and pour the footers and lay the foundation because it takes time. And that's it's one of the most frustrating because you feel like you're starting building this thing. And you get started and then you have to wait. <laughs> to wait on the concrete to cure, and you have to wait for it to be right to ultimately build on top of that foundation. Because if you don't get the foundation right, the whole house is going to be messed up. And so Paul, in this letter, he's going to talk to them about this foundation. He's going to talk about the facts, okay? That's what creates a solid foundation, a solid footing. And then on that, we build our life of faith, and we see the fruit that comes from it. That's why the series is called Facts, Faith, and Fruit. And that's what he's doing in this letter. But at the beginning, he's spending a lot of time establishing the, this foundation because this is what got cracked. And so he needs to go back and do some repair work and make sure that they have a really strong foundation in order to build on that. And he's talking about, um, in order, order to, to establish his credibility in this and the, the solidness of his message in Galatians, he's telling them about a time that he went to Jerusalem. Okay, he's telling the story of this time that he went to Jerusalem because Jerusalem is where the big dogs were. 
okay? <laughs> Jerusalem is where the pillars, the giants were there. The, the, the capital A apostles, which Paul was as well, but he's having to defend that right here. He goes to Jerusalem where the center of Christianity was, right? And you've got guys like Peter is in Jerusalem. And James, the brother of Jesus, who was the leader of the church in Jerusalem, he was there. And John, Jesus' best friend, was there. So you've got these tremendous leaders in Jerusalem. And Paul is telling them about this time that he went back to see them. Now, there's a timeline that we get in the book of Galatians from Paul and where he went and when. There's a, there's a timeline in the book of Acts on where Paul went and when. And there's a little bit of confusion or discrepancy. When was this and when was that? And he didn't feel the need to put all those details in there. And so there's a little question. But I tend to think that this, this encounter that he's talking about right here, where we are in Galatians chapter 2, you can go to chapter 2 if you have got your Bibles open. In Galatians chapter 2, this encounter... I think is actually his second visit to Jerusalem that's recorded in the book of Acts. And there's a reason here that I'm going to give when we get there. Um, but this is, this is what Paul did. He, he makes, in his early ministry, he makes three trips to Jerusalem. The first one is three years after he encounters Jesus on the road to Damascus and accepts Christ. So he waited three years before going to Jerusalem, three years of, of receiving the revelation from Jesus and understanding this gospel, this theology, and this doctrine of free grace. He receives that from Jesus. Three years later, he goes to Jerusalem to meet the apostles and to, uh, to verify all of this together with them. And so he goes that first time. Then he goes, and he talked about that earlier in Galatians. But then he goes, back to, um, he goes back to Tarsus, where he's from, and ultimately ends up in Antioch, which becomes his home base. And he hangs out there for about 11 years. And then he, uh, they hear that there is a famine that's going to come over the whole land. Somebody gives a prophecy that there's going to be a famine in the whole land. And instantly, Paul and the other believers who are in Antioch are concerned for the believers that are in Jerusalem. The reason for that is because the believers in Jerusalem, when, when Jesus gave his life on the cross, rose again on the third day, he was with them for a short period of time, and then he returned to heaven. And when he returned to heaven, they knew he was going to be coming back at some point. And so they gathered the church together, this first church, and they started collecting and, and holding all things in common. So everybody pitched into the pot so that they could take care of each other, so that they could take care of the widows and the orphans and the distribution of food. And it was very much communal living with the church, which was a great strategy, a great fellowship strategy, a great spiritual strategy, a great witness to the rest of the world of what a life of faith and community and unity looks like. Unfortunately, it was a terrible financial strategy, <laughs> And they were expecting Christ to come back very, very soon. So they kind of burned it all and burned through all of the resources very quickly. But Jesus didn't return as quickly as they thought he was going to. He still hasn't. So we are still waiting today. All right, but they were, because of this, the believers in Jerusalem, and because of the persecution on top of that they were facing from the Jewish ruling authority and from the government, they found themselves very much in destitute need in Jerusalem. So when, when Paul and Barnabas and others that were in Antioch 
heard this prophecy that there was going to be a famine in all of the land, their heart instantly went out to the, the, the believers who were in Jerusalem, knowing that it was going to hit them the hardest. And presumably, the, the Gentile believers in places like Antioch had more resources and were wealthier than those who were left in uh, Jerusalem, the region of Judea. And so, so when they heard about that, they instantly started taking up a collection. And this actually happens a few times in the New Testament. In fact, Almost all of the scriptures in the New Testament from Paul that are about giving or money, people try to take that and use it to teach on tithing or other things, but that's not what Paul's doing. Paul's not teaching on that. Paul is preparing, in those cases, an offering to go back to the believers who are in Jerusalem to take care of them. And so they get this prophecy, there's going to be this famine, and Paul uh, begins collecting. And then um, after his first trip, about 11 years after his first trip, so this would be roughly 47 AD, Paul and Barnabas travel to Jerusalem a second time, this time to bring that offering to them as financial support for uh, the, the need that they're going to be facing. And I think that that is the visit most likely that Paul is talking about here. The next visit he makes is three years later. It's in 50 AD, and that is for the Jerusalem council. And my, my opinion is, or my assessment is, given the content of Galatians and what he's talking about with the law and, and grace, if this had been the Jerusalem council visit, he would have said so. That's where I land. It, it, it just it hits the nail so on the head um, with what happens in 50 that I don't think this trip is in 50. I think it's before that in 47. Sorry, that's a long way around. That's for the history nerds in the room who, who love to know the timeline and everything. Point is, and I think this is going to matter in a moment, I think this is the visit in 47 AD when they're bringing this financial aid to the believers, the brothers and sisters in Jerusalem, um, and it's the second time going back to see them. And he goes back, and he talks to them, and he shares the gospel with them that he's, that's been revealed to him by Jesus and what he wants to see, he wants to know if they, if the apostle, if the, the other apostles, Peter, James, John in particular, if they agree with the gospel that's been revealed to him. Now, he knows that that gospel has been revealed to him directly by Jesus, so he's not going to change it, even if they say otherwise. But his concern is that they're going to teach something else, and then they're going to be at odds with each other, and they're not going to be effective because they're going to be saying different things. So he wants to know that, do you guys, have you guys received the same gospel, the same good news that I've received? And the answer to that was yes, okay? And so we're right in the middle of that interaction in uh, Galatians chapter two. So that's where we're gonna jump in, in verse six. He's having this, this uh, discussion with them, this conference with them over the gospel and what it is and what it isn't. And he says in verse six, but from those who seemed to be something, whatever they were, it makes no difference to me, God shows personal favoritism to no man. For those who seemed to be something added nothing to me. Now, I don't know about you, but this language to me, it sounds a little snarky. Does it sound a little snarky to you? It sounds, it almost feels like he's making a dig at the other apostles. Like, yeah, they seem to be something, but they weren't anything to me. <laughs> you know, it's almost like he's cutting them down or demeaning them in some way. But that is definitely not what he's doing. It just feels that way. It appears that way. It's tough to translate this from uh, the original language into English. And so there's some cultural context and nuance that's lost when we make that move. That's not what he's doing. This is a very matter-of-fact statement. And what it seems like, it seems like maybe the believers in Jerusalem are really venerating these people and really lifting them up on a pedestal. 
And Paul wants to make it clear that these people are not on any different level than he is. It's part of him establishing his, his grounding as an apostle to the, to the Galatians and saying, yeah, these people seem to be something, but whatever they are, God has no, he doesn't have regard for any man. In fact, he says that the most literal translation of this, and it's a little weird, but the most literal translation is um, that God receives no man's face. <laughs> I do not receive your face. Which would be, I think, a pretty funny thing to say even now. But God doesn't receive any man's face. Now, be clear, Paul would include himself in that characterization as well. So he's not saying anything about them. He wouldn't be saying about himself either. He's just saying they're not, they are to be honored because of their role, but they are not different or higher. He's not starstruck by the apostles, right? He doesn't get into their presence and then just like cower. He's not going to back down on, his, on the gospel, on the good news, just because it's these guys. The, the message is greater than the messenger. And so he's making that very, very clear here. The message is greater than the messenger. And he says, and, and, and I think this is important. This is important for us to, today to remember, because oftentimes we will take people and we will venerate them or we will elevate them into a position that they do not belong. None of us belong in that. None of us belong in that seat. And I, I, I feel really strongly about this because, frankly, I think sometimes as a pastor that gets done to me and I don't like it. <laughs> when people try to put me on a different level than them or, or elevate me or think I'm on some pedestal. And I am not. I, I don't, honestly, I don't even like the titles, to be frank with you. Like, I would rather you just call me John. Okay, like people, I know some people out of respect or, you know, whatever, just you can't not say Pastor John or whatever. That's fine. Um, but I'll tell you one that gets me. And just don't do this. Just don't. When people, and this is a Southern thing, okay? But when people call me preacher, I, I hate, I hate that. I hate it. You just got to know. When people are like, this is my preacher. I'm like, oh, no, please don't. Like, no, because I feel like that carries with it this connotation. I don't know. Like, like that person... I joke about this, but as a pastor, when I try not to let people know that I'm a pastor right out of the gate, <laughs> because what I've noticed is when they find that out, then I stop being a normal person to them, right? And all of a sudden, I'm this idea or this intermediary between them and God, and that is not my job. That is no man's job. Jesus is the intermediary between us and God. So, so I, I don't like that, and so when that happens, I see people, I literally see people like it's like a metamorphosis. They go, from, they go from a caterpillar into a butterfly instantly right in front of me. And I'm like, oh, cut that out. Like, do I, yeah, you were, you were acting like an idiot. And yeah, you need to change. But don't change for me, you know. <laughs> change for Jesus, not for me. So it's really important that we don't get starstruck or we don't put people on these particular pedestals or levels or other things. And especially in a, in a culture and a world where we have, frankly, we have like rock star, superstar, pastors and leaders and people that are on TV and everything, musicians and all this kind of stuff. Hey, listen, don't be intimidated by them. Okay? They are people just like you and me. They, they receive the spirit just like you and I do. And there are certainly times and places for honor and respect and appreciating what people have brought to the kingdom of God. And that's awesome. But 
just remember that in no way, even if that exists, it's not because of anything they've done, but what God has done through them. And so to God be the glory for all of that. And we don't have to be intimidated by any of that. And that's basically what Paul's saying. Even though he holds an office that I do not and will never hold, and that's the capital A apostle meeting the resurrected Jesus. So me and Paul, I'm not putting him on a pedestal. He has a different role and has received a different kind of blessing from God in that role, and that's awesome. Um, but he's meeting with the apostles in Jerusalem, the big boys, and, and he is not intimidated by them at all. And he says, and again, this, this may again look like a dig, but it's really not. He says, for those who seem to be something added nothing to me. Now, like we might use that phrase as sort of a, like, yeah, they didn't add anything to me. Like they didn't bring, bring anything to the table. What he means though, is that they didn't add to the gospel. So they didn't, he said, he said, I went right to them and I told them the message has been revealed to me by Jesus and they didn't add anything to it, right? They, they confirmed, yes, this is the truth. We agree and we are together on this, that the gospel is simple and the gospel is clear, that there is nothing that we can do to earn salvation. But God has extended his grace in Jesus Christ. Jesus, he's the son of God, gave his life sinless on the cross, was put into the tomb on the third day, rose again. He did the work and he offers us his grace. And if we put our faith in Jesus Christ, we receive his grace through faith in Christ alone. And that's it. There's nothing else we have to do. There's no other qualifications and there's nothing we have to do after the fact. It is that simple. That was Paul's message. He confirmed it with the other apostles. It is, those are the facts. Those are the foundation on which we build our life of faith and all the decisions that we make and all that we get to see happen through God's grace. And so that is the simple truth. And you, you and me, can be saved not by any work of our own, but by the work of God through faith in Jesus Christ. And that is the simple gospel. And he says they didn't add anything to that. Um, verse 7, let's keep going. Verse 7, but on the contrary, not only did they not add anything to it, on the contrary... When they saw that the gospel for the uncircumcised, that would be the Gentiles, non-Jews, the gospel for the uncircumcised had been committed to me, as the gospel for the circumcised was to Peter, for he who worked effectively in Peter for the apostleship to the circumcised also worked effectively in me toward the Gentiles." So what they did was they looked at Paul's ministry, they, they confirmed and agreed with the gospel. And this wasn't a different message. It wasn't a different gospel. It was a different audience. And they said, look, and, and remember, uh, uh, Paul has Titus with him. And Titus is a Gentile believer, and they're seeing Titus. And they're seeing Titus, you know, he's, he's filled with the Spirit, and he's doing incredible things, and he's put his faith in Jesus. He's clearly saved. And so when the, the other apostles look and they see, man, look at, look at Paul's ministry. Look how effective this ministry is to the Gentiles. It's just as effective as Peter's ministry to the Jews. They looked at that and they said, it's the same gospel, but look how effective they are. An unbelievable teamwork and partnership is beginning to develop right here in Jerusalem at this moment. And they can see that the mark is they see the effectiveness of the gospel ministry that they are doing. They said, the, me the message is solid. How can we argue with these results? Look at what's happening through his ministry, and then they do this in verse 9. And when James, Cephas, that's Peter, that's his other name, when James, Cephas, 
and John, who seemed to be pillars, and I think this is a, a sign of respect from, from Paul. These guys, were, they were holding up the church. These were the pillars of the church, and that's a good thing. When they seemed to be pillars, perceived the grace that had been given to me, they gave me and Barnabas the right hand of fellowship, that we should go to the Gentiles and they to the circumcised. So they see how effective, they say, Paul's ministry to the Gentiles is just as effective as Peter's ministry to the Jews. Like, let's, let's work together here. So, so when they see it, they confirm it. They see the grace that's been given to Paul. He says they extend the right hand of fellowship. Or the, they use the word koinonia. Koinonia is the closest kind of fellowship word that they had in their language. So it's the right hand of partnership, the right hand of brotherhood. They let's shake hands, all right? Shake hands, and here's what we're going to do. You go do ministry to the Gentiles, and we're going to do ministry for the Jews, and together, by dividing and conquering, we're going to cover a lot more ground together. It is such a cool moment of teamwork in the early church. It's a strategic moment in the church to say, we trust you to go and do that while we do this. What, a, what an amazing moment. What an amazing moment in history and how thankful we should be to them in that moment for having that kind of unity and partnership because without it, the gospel may not have spread like it spread and the gospel may not have even reached where we are today because they were willing to let Paul go and take the message to the Gentiles, which I'm willing to bet most of you are, including me. What an incredible moment of partnership and teamwork. And that's what the, the spreading of this good news takes. When I think about teamwork, fair warning, because it's fall, <laughs> it means it's football season. <laughs> you had a break. Listen, you had a break from like February till now. I, she never had, but you had a break. From February till now, I haven't talked about much football. There hasn't been much football to talk about, okay? But this weekend, the college season got into full swing. I know some of you were at the games this weekend. And next week, the NFL season kicks off on Thursday. My fantasy football draft is tonight, and I can't wait to dominate everyone else in the league and take the trophy back from A.J., I had, it for, I had it for two years. It got comfy on my nightstand. That's where it stayed. On my nightstand. He put it on his mantle. Anyway, I got to get it back. But the, the, here's the thing I love about football. I know a lot of you, some of you aren't sports people. That's cool. It, it's not, but it's, it's fine. And some of, you, some of you like other sports versus, versus football, and that's fine too, I guess. But the, here's the thing. that Here's the reason football is my favorite sport. The level of teamwork that it takes in a football game, and the different kinds of skills and abilities it requires on an individual team, I think is unmatched in all of sports. Like, you look at a football team, and if you didn't know how the game was played, you'd be like, why are there, why are there huge people and little people? <laughs> why, how, how does this even work? And I know you, like, there, there are other sports where there's size differences, but in, in football, and, and sorry, side note, the real reason I love football is because of the strategy. There's so much strategy. Every play is an individual strategy. But anyway, but the teamwork is impressive because you look, you look at an offensive lineman, this big, like, 300-pound hulk of a person, and they could never play defensive back. 
Okay? They just they wouldn't be fast enough. They wouldn't be agile enough. They can't play that position. Each of the positions is so specific on what it requires. And when the play starts, whether you're on offense or defense, everybody is doing a very specific job, and everybody has to do their job in order for that play to work. Everybody has to be working at the same time. Everybody has to be given effort at the same time. And everybody has their very specific role to play in an offense or in a defense or on special teams. And I love that. I think it is such a cool picture of what we do. It's a picture of what God has designed. It's a small representation of a bigger thing that God has designed for us. And that's that we are all custom-tuned. We all have a specific life and spiritual physique that has a role in the team. We all have a different kind of ministry, even though we do that close to one another, adjacent to one another. And God is in the process. He's not done with you or me. He's in the process of continuing to cultivate us and change us and mold us and grow us into exactly the person he wants to, to have to do a specific thing in a specific moment. And that's constantly changing over time, and that's really cool. And what's important for us as believers is to know and have confidence that we are being of the highest and best use to God in this particular moment with this particular set of skills and experiences and opportunities that he's placed in our lap. And to say, do I feel like I am having the same kind of effect that Paul was having with the Galatians, that Peter was having with the Jews? Am I operating in what God has created me to do and to be? And to have that kind of confidence. And so my question for you would be, because it requires all of us doing all of those things in order to accomplish all that God wants to accomplish. So are you fulfilling your role on the team? Are you confident in that? Do you know what it is? Do you know what the opportunities are? Do you know how God is gifting you and molding you and changing you and equipping you and, and putting opportunities in front? Do you know what all of that is in your life? And do you feel like you are leaning into that with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength? And if you are, awesome, keep going. And if you aren't, where is it? What is it? Find it. It, it might be through something that we offer, an opportunity, a team or a group or something that we offer through the church. But, man, there's no way that this church could provide the all of the opportunities to do everything God wants to do in your life or in this community. So maybe it's through this church somehow. But maybe it's outside here. Maybe it's at work or at school or through some other ministry that's happening. Maybe it's, uh, you know, missionary work or it's maybe it's away from here. But be seeking out what that is for you so that you can operate in the same kind of confidence and joy and fulfillment that Paul and Peter and the others were as well. All right. And here's the thing. This, this is one of the beautiful things that I see here with, with this group of people and how they got started. Peter and James and John looked at Paul and they saw how effective he was in ministry and then they trusted him to go and do that. And they knew that they didn't have to necessarily cover that ground because Paul was going out to cover it. This is one of the things that has, oh, this has been such a relief for me as a pastor because when I first started off in ministry, I genuinely thought I had to do everything. I thought I was responsible for everybody's spiritual journey and every ministry that was going on and, and every way that the church was working or every problem that came up. People would have a passion for a particular issue, and I felt like I had to make that my issue. And I ended up taking so many things onto my shoulders that it just crushed me with the, the 
recognition that there's no way I could ever do all that or carry all that. But when I learned finally that I needed to learn how to trust other people to do what God wanted them to do, it took a tremendous burden off of my shoulders as a pastor to know I am responsible for what God has placed in front of me and the gifting and the the talents and the ministry that he's given to me. And I have to trust you to be faithful with the gifting and the talents and ministry he's given to you. And I don't have to micromanage that or carry that on my shoulders. That's for you. And so that takes a tremendous burden. It's like, I'm going to go to football. It's like, it's like when a quarterback trusts his offensive line. If a quarterback doesn't trust his offensive line to block the defensive players coming in, then he can't focus on what he needs to do, working through his progressions, making the reads, reading the defense, and making the throw or the pass or the option or whatever it may, whatever it may be. But when the offensive line is doing its job, He doesn't have to think about the pressure coming from the defense. He can focus on the job that he's supposed to be doing. That's what it's like for us when we trust each other to do what God has called us to do. It takes the pressure off of us. We feel free to live and walk in our ministry because we know those things are happening. I'm so thankful that we have people in this church that have taken the bull by the horns and they are running with, like, Jesse and Kayla leading our youth ministry. They are doing such a fantastic job. And I love it. And my kids are in youth ministry. All three of them are in youth group now. They just, Josie just started. So all three of them are in youth group now. And I, I, hate to, I hate to say this. I hope this doesn't seem dismissive, but I never have to think about it. They and the other youth leaders are doing such a tremendous job. There's never any, we never have any problems coming out of there, right? I trust them with it. And so that's like this huge burden that's just off of my shoulders. And I can enjoy it and hear the stories of what's going on and hear my kids and trust that my kids are growing in youth group and all that kind of stuff. So it's like when people will individually take responsibility, it takes the weight off of all of us. So my question for you is, do you know what that calling is, what that mission is that God has given to you right now with what you have right now, where you are right now? Do you know what that is? And are you, with all of your heart, with all of your soul, with all of your mind, diving into it? All right, Paul was called and specifically called and uniquely gifted to share the gospel with the Gentiles. Peter was specifically called and uniquely gifted to share the gospel with the Jews. They had different messages, or they had different missions, but they shared the same message. And so the same thing is true for us to understand. So we need to appreciate the fact that there are other believers that have different callings and different missions than we do. And we can find ways to support them. Or even if we aren't doing that thing, we can find ways to encourage and support them. We also need to recognize that as long as a, there's another church out there that, that holds the same gospel foundation as us, as long as we're, t- we're teaching the same message and we're unified on that gospel foundation, that there are different callings and giftings and missions and, and audiences for different churches out there. And that's a great thing. That's a wonderful thing. And we may disagree on certain points of doctrine or theology, you know, other things, and we can have those discussions. But as long as we're on the same gospel ground, know that there are other churches out there that are doing really good work and reaching people that we might not ever reach. Because as a church, and I don't talk about this all the time, but as a church, we have a very specific what we are, you know, and there's all kinds of people in the world. And so you can't reach all the people in the world. You have to pick your gospel ground and go at it. And we've done that. And there are other churches that are doing that as well. And that's a beautiful and a wonderful thing. And then uh, to finish up our section today in chapter 10, this feels like a little bit of a deviation, but it's actually not. And when we, when we dig a little deeper, um, verse 10, so they said, you go to the Gentiles. We'll go, to, we'll go to the Jews. 
It says in verse 10, they desired only that we should remember the poor, the very thing which I was also was eager to do. Now, I think that's why he was there in the first place. And, and specifically in the context of this, it looks like to remember the poor feels like a generic statement, but I don't think that's what they're saying. What the apostles are saying is, you go and take the gospel to the Gentiles, okay? But don't forget about us. <laughs> All right, in this case, the poor are the, are the, the believers in Jerusalem, okay? These, these are the Christians in Jerusalem. And so they're saying, yes, go take the best of the Gentiles, but don't forget about mama, you know? Yeah, you go out and spread your wings, but don't forget about home. And he doesn't because he does another offering later to them, and, and he's, he, he takes care of them because they need to be taken care of. Continue, he said, continue is the, the word that he uses here. We should remember the poor. It's actually, it's an ongoing word that he uses so that they would continue remembering the poor, that you'd keep doing this because we need this and we need your support. And I think, that's, I think that's an important point here because as we go out and we fulfill our mission, we do have to trust that other people are fulfilling their mission. And it is incumbent upon us, particularly if we are believers who have resources at our disposal, that we help to support other ministries and other people that may not have those resources or may be dependent on it. I think it's a beautiful thing to support, uh, to individually support missionaries that are overseas or other uh, faith-based organizations that are doing really good work in our community or in our nation. And so finding a way, even though we say that's not my mission and I can't give my life to that or that's not what I'm supposed to be doing, I want to find a way if I can to support that and honor that and take care of that so that you can go and do it. And it's one of the beautiful things that we see within the the family of God is the way that people honor and support and care for each other as they go out and do the work. We, we are part of this big and awesome thing that God is doing in the world. And we all have our individual role to play. Our church has a role to play in that. But it's all to fulfill God's mission in the world, to support our brothers and sisters and to do what God has called us to do. And that's a beautiful, beautiful thing. And so now as, as Paul has set this foundation, he's going to continue um, dealing with the apostles for just a, a, a moment here in the scripture. Next week, what we get into, but he's going to begin building on this foundation and what a life of faith looks like. And so if you still have questions about what does this mean for me and how do I move forward and what does my mission look like and what has God called me to do? I pray that over the next few weeks, as we continue to go through this series, as you join into groups and you're discussing this, that you'll get a more and more clear picture of what God has planned for your life so you can walk fully in it. All right, let's go to him in prayer now as we offer all this to him and thank him. Father, we love you and we're so thankful for the gospel, for the truth, the good news, that there's nothing we can do to earn salvation. If we try, we will fail. But you, in your grace and mercy, have sent your son Jesus here. Jesus, you willingly came. You humbled yourself. You set a perfect example for us. You lived without sin gave your life on the cross, and rose again on the third day. You did the work that we can't do. And we know that the only way for us to come to you, Father, is through Jesus Christ. And so most of us, many of us in the room, have accepted your grace, God, through faith in Jesus, in Jesus alone. God, I pray if there's anyone with us this morning who has never put their faith in Jesus for salvation, they've been trying to earn it, They've been trying to figure it out. They've been trying to work for it. And they recognize today that it is, they can only receive your grace through faith in Jesus. I pray they would do that right now. That in this moment, they would express their trust and faith. 
in you and that you receive them into their family even now. That you fill them with the Spirit and show them what it means to follow you, to honor you, to sacrifice for you, to be transformed. And that God, as we are all on that journey together, we're in that process together, that we are trusting you We're trusting you to do in and through us what you want to do in and through us. And we're fully allowing you to do that. Whatever that mission looks like, whatever that ministry looks like. And that even as we're doing that, we're trusting that you are working in so many ways that we could never even fathom. You're working in people's hearts and lives. You're doing things in and through people that we'll never even see, that we could never understand, that you're doing this massive thing in the world. And even though our part may feel or seem very, very small, it is essential to the entire thing. And so we thank you for that today. We ask that you continue to give us clarity on what your mission is for us. As we prepare Christ for your return, as we wait for your return, Jesus, when you will come back and you will rule as King of kings and Lord of lords, we look forward to that day when you will usher in your kingdom. We are preparing ourselves now for that. So continue changing us, continue transforming us, continue molding us into the image of Jesus. So on that day, Christ, when you return, we are ready. We are ready for you. With our heads held high, knowing that we fulfilled the mission you put in front of us. We thank you for it with all of our heart. It's in your name we pray. Amen.